Let's pray. Lord, I just pray, as Rob prayed, Lord, that you would bless us tonight in your word, Lord. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way with us, Lord, tonight and every day this week, Lord. Have your way with us. Use us, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are, last time, we are in Luke chapter 2, heading for chapter 3. And we're on like verse 43 in Luke chapter 2. And last time we saw Mary, Joseph, and Jesus went to Jerusalem for the feast. And when it was over, they come home and they, Mary and Joseph did a day's journey and they suddenly realized that Jesus wasn't with them. So they went searching for him, thinking that he was with relatives, that he was with the people who were in the caravan with them going back to Nazareth. They go back to Jerusalem and you can imagine the panic you know, I was watching a thing on, uh, I forget what show it was, I think it was Cops, and there was a child who had gotten separated from his mother, and the police were trying to help the mother find the child, and the mother was just like freaking out, and you can't imagine the panic of losing a child like that, and especially in a big crowd, just going back to Jerusalem, thousands of people muscling their way through the crowd looking for Jesus, and finally they find him in the temple, and he's teaching the elders in the temple. I remember seeing a painting. It was called Jesus Teaches the Elders. And it was a painting and it showed this young boy standing in the temple. And he was obviously speaking. He was gesturing with his hands. And all the old men were standing around him. And they all had their beards on, their beards and their robes on. And they were obviously listening because all their mouths were closed. The one who gave the law to Moses on the mountain is now teaching the elders in the temple, teaching the teachers of the law. And so they come back, make their way back to Nazareth. And it says in verse 50, it says, but they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. So because he said to them when they found him, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I would be about my father's business? You know, where else would I be except in my father's house and doing my father's business, bringing light into the world? And it says they didn't understand the statement. Now, they were told earlier that who Jesus is, that he is the son of God. But, you know, sometimes when we hear things from the Lord and the Lord tells us things, they can get filed in like the file of forgetfulness because of just everyday activity and we can lose things. And certainly Mary and Joseph had been through a lot. This whole trip to Jerusalem, then searching for their child, and it didn't hit them, the statement. And the only way we can bring those things back that we hear from the Lord is do what Mary did. It says she kept all these things in her heart. She contemplated these things. Everything she saw, everything she heard, she contemplated them in her heart. And when we do that, the things the Lord has shown us and the things the Lord has told us come back to our mind, come back to our memory. And it says in verse 51, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart, as mothers would. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So the Son of God obeyed the foster parents that he had created, was subject to them. And he grew in favor, in stature, and in favor with God and men. You know, the self-righteous and the religious 
and the legalistic and the hypocrites would end up hating Jesus. But those who knew him, those who lived in his neighborhood, the kids he grew up with, the people he did work for, sinners, they didn't hate him. They flocked to him. They wanted to be near him. If you live in a cold, dark place, you want to be near the light. And when Jesus was on earth, he was the light. And those around him, he grew in favor. They wanted to be near him, the perfect man, the perfect human being. And in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etura and the region of Trent. I should always rehearse these names before I do this. Trachona did whatever, and Lyanus, tetrarch of Abilene. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. All these men who were in charge had one thing in common, all of them, just cruel brutality, ruling brutally the people, oppressing the people. This was the political authority Jesus was living under when he was on earth. And John, the word of God came to John, and, it was, and John was able to hear it because he had separated himself from Jerusalem, from the priesthood. He was in line to be a priest. He was of that lineage. And he left all that and went into the wilderness alone with God. And God was able to speak to him and reveal his plan for John's life because he got, was able to get alone with God, to get alone with the Lord. And he preached repentance for the remission of sins. Repentance means turning away from something and turning towards something else. It means you stop doing what God says not to and start doing what God says to do. In Romans 2, 3, it says, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? It's not wise to judge other people, things how there's no sin that I'm not guilty of. It says in verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? It's God's goodness that brings us to repent, that brings us back to him that place where there's forgiveness, restoration, and joy and peace, being restored to the Lord. It's the goodness of God that leads us there. You know, and what causes us to repent? The Bible says it's God's goodness. You look at the prodigal son, left his home, disgraced his family, disgraced his whole village, and he ends up living with the pigs. And it says that he came to himself, he came to his senses, you know, and he decided to go back to his father, and it wasn't out of any burning love for his father, or it wasn't any spiritual revelation. It wasn't regret that he hurt his father. It was self-preservation. He knew, if I stay in this pig pen, I'm going to die. And the only way I can live is if I go back to my father. The only source of life was to return to his father. And when he did, his father accepted him. You know, why do I repent when I sin, when I get off track, and the Lord convicts my heart? Why do I repent? Because I want to live. And if my sin separates me from God, I'll die unless I come back and be with Jesus. You know, I want to be with Jesus. Outside of that is, there's no life. So what brings us to repentance? 
is it, if you do that again, I'm going to kill you? Or is it, as it says in Isaiah 44, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. It's the goodness of God that brings us back. That He's always tell the kids in Sunday school, this is something that you have to know as you get older, that you can always come home. You can always come home. We tell them that there's two words that God will never say to you, go away. And there are two words that he will always say to you, come closer. And sometimes we think, you know, can I repent? Can I come home? Maybe God is through with me. Maybe I've, sometimes we feel like maybe we've gone too far. I've done this too many times. You know, how can I come home? In Jeremiah 3.1, The Lord says, they say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers. And God says, yet return to me, says the Lord. You've done worse than this worldly judgment. Yet return to me, says the Lord. The Lord always says, come back. But a person who thinks that this amazing grace gives them a license to sin, that person has not received the grace of God and is in danger. Repentance means turning away from our sins. It doesn't mean they have to clean up my act before I come to Christ for forgiveness. We come to Jesus just as we are, and Christ through the Spirit does the cleansing once we come to him and receive him as our Lord and Savior. Jesus receives us just as we are, but we do have to repent. We do have to turn away from trying to establish our own righteousness. We have to turn away from trying to make ourselves acceptable to God. And turning to Christ, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is what John preached. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Last time we looked at Simeon. And in chapter 2, verse 27 it says, so he came by the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel, holding this baby Simeon looked at this child, this baby he was holding, and said, my eyes have seen your salvation. And last time we were talking about how there is nothing more important for any individual than to leave this world in peace, to leave this world having peace with God. The Bible says that he is our peace. And the only way that we can leave this world in peace is to have our sins removed, to see the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. At last breath, it's not going to be bragging about what we have done, and it's not going to be lamenting over what we have failed to do. It will only be the blood of Christ shed on Calvary, the life given for our sins, to leave this world in peace, the forgiveness of sins. And we've got to pray that it doesn't become a common thing, because we hear it so often, every, every time we come to church, Jesus died for your sins. That's why it's important to pray for the kids in Sunday school, that it doesn't become just a a response to a Sunday school question. I had to laugh. 
somebody was in with the two and three-year-olds, and there was a little three-year-old girl in there. And the teacher said to her, you know, Jesus died for your sins. And this little three-year-old girl looked up at her and said, I know, sweetheart. <laughs> and they do know. They do know. They've heard it over and over and over again. We need to pray that it doesn't become a route answer to a Sunday school question. The forgiveness of sins. Uh, if you want to, you can turn to 1 Kings 14.7, or I can just read it. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 7. God says, Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel. This is Jeroboam, not a good king. He's the one, the Bible keeps referring to him as the one who made Israel sin. He's the one that introduced idolatry into Israel with the two golden calves and the altar to prevent people from going to Jerusalem and coming back to Judah and coming back to Rehoboam. I made you ruler over my people Israel. And in verse 8 it says, And tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. To hear what God says about David. He followed me with all his heart, and he did only what was right in my eyes. How can God say that about David? Because we know differently reading David's life. God would say of David, he's a man after my own heart. But did David only do what was right in the sight of the Lord? In 2 Samuel 12.9, the Lord says to David, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. So David committed adultery and he committed murder. And yet God says he followed me with his whole heart and only did what was right in my sight. How could God say that David followed the Lord with all his heart and only did what was right in his sight? Because God didn't look upon the bad, he only looked upon the good. You know, how could he do that? Why would he only look upon the good and not the bad that was in David's life? Because David and everybody else in the Old Testament who were saved, who through the revelation of God, through the types of the sacrifices, through the words of the prophets, these people were able to see, say, in, as Job did, for I know my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. They knew that their Redeemer lives. And they knew this through the prophets, through the sacrifices. And in David's own words, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And what a rejoicing thing that is, to stand before God and God will not impute our sin to us. Not look upon the bad, only look upon the good. We have sinned, but he has not condemned us. He has condemned our sin. In Romans 8.3, it says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Because our Redeemer lives, God will not look upon the bad, only the good. May there be good to be seen as a response to his grace. 
good being defined as what Christ has accomplished in us and through us and for us. God only looks upon the good. Verse 4, and back in Luke. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. I thought I might, we might read that whole scriptural reference. It's in Isaiah 40, verse 1. The Lord says, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her. Tell her warfare, tell that her warfare is ended and her iniquity pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand. His arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. So John was that voice crying in the wilderness, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There hadn't been a prophet in Israel for hundreds of years. No word from the Lord, only the dry, dead, legalistic teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Then John shows up, and people flock to him like thirsty people to water. Finally, the word of God is with us, a prophet is with us, and people ran to him, hungry. In verse 7, it says, Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And we know that this was aimed at the Pharisees. Jesus called the Pharisees brood of vipers. He said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It must have caused quite a stir, all the people standing around. And here come the Pharisees, the most important men in Israel, people who held life and death in their hand. And here, John calls them a brood of vipers. John and Jesus were not respecter of persons. It's like life is too short and the work is too important to be playing with vipers. In Matthew 12, 34, it says, Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. 
We don't have to put up with or give an inch to spiritual vipers. In Galatians 2.5, Paul speaks about vipers who were coming into the church. And he said, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Sometimes when people confront us in opposition to what the word of God says, we try to reason with them, and we don't want to offend anyone. Vipers need to be offended. And John certainly did that. Verse 8, it says, Therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Let the resulting proof of your turning back to God be seen. Proof of repentance. Stop being a phony and be real. Don't count on your lineage, because the Jews thought we're descended from Abraham, and that gives us an automatic place in heaven. The Jews are God's chosen nation, and the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Paul said in Romans 3.1, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. They had the law, the prophets, and through their lineage, the Messiah. But they felt, I'm righteous because I'm a Jew, just because of my ancestry. And by following the traditions, I become acceptable to God. Paul wrote in Romans 10.1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, which is by faith. Faith is the righteous, faith in the righteous act of someone outside of ourselves, Jesus Christ. Verse 9. It says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? You know, we don't want to be cut down and thrown into the fire. What, what, can, what should we do? What do you want us to do? What is the evidence that there is good fruit in our lives? And John is saying, be real. Hypocrisy, hypocrisy is a sin. I say I believe this and that. I believe that this is right and this is wrong, but sometimes my actions invalidate what I say I believe. He answered and said to them in verse 11, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none, and he who has food, let him do likewise. Fruit worthy of a repentance. Love in word, love not in word, but in action. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The Bible says the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love, that that's the only thing that really matters. In John 6.28, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may do, that we may work the works of God? What does God want us to do? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Believe in Jesus. You know, what does it mean to believe? Again, in the Sunday school, we keep going over this. The kids hear it over and over again, believe in Jesus. And it's like, do they know what it means? And we have it written on the board up front. You, to believe in Jesus means you believe who he is, you believe what he says, you believe what he has done, believe what he, that he has done it for you, believe that he will love you forever, and now I want to obey him. 
Whoever has received Christ, the Holy Spirit, now dwells in them, and the fruit of the Spirit will grow, which is love. Verse 12, Then the tax collectors came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Notice that John didn't call them a brood of vipers, these tax collectors, these traitors, because that's what they were considered by the populace. They were considered to be traitors. They were, to the people, a brood of vipers. But they were sinners realizing that they had filled their lives with hopeless things. You know, is this a chance that even we can come back to God? Look at the tax collector Zacchaeus, who showed the fruit of repentance. In Luke 19.5, it says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In Micah 6 8, it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What shall we do? Likewise the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. You know, we have received salvation, we have repented, we have quit our works and we have come to Christ and we rest in him and what he does. We are saved by faith. So what should we do? The Bible has a lot of things that we should be doing. In Ephesians 6.1 it says, Children, obey your parents in the law, for this is right in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. The person who honors his father or mother, there is a guaranteed blessing from God upon that person. And I've seen that in families, kids who take care of their aging parents. I've seen it in Christian families, and I've seen it in unsaved families, that the Lord pronounces a blessing on them for doing that. If you take care of your parents, if you honor your parents, not everybody's able to do that, but honoring your father and mother their whole lives, there's a blessing in it for, for people who do that. In verse 4 of that scripture, it says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, to bring them up, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This is what we are to do. Bring our children up in the training and admonition of the Lord. You know, dads, your families don't need a tyrant. In Psalm 103.13, it says, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. We teach our children the word of God. We pray for them and with them. But you have to give your children a reason to believe. Make sure they know that there are consequences for their actions, good and bad. But make sure that they know that no matter what I do, this person, my father, my mother, will never stop loving me. Let them see the love of Christ. 
Give them a reason to believe and let them see your faith. Let them see this in you. In Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Children need to see this in their parents. They need to see parents who are living a life of faith, trusting and dependence on the Lord for everything, praying about everything. The kids see this. What joy there is in a house where a family is living by faith, trusting in God, depending on him to take care of them. It is a joyful and safe life, and kids see this. Another thing we do, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, for with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart and to Christ, as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service to the Lord and not to men, not with eye service. Have you ever at work heard this? Here comes a boss, look busy. Grab a clipboard, do something. Look busy, the boss is coming. With goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Luke 16:11 says, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? You know, I pray, Lord, use me, I wanna serve you, but if I can't be faithful at work for a paycheck, who will commit to me the true riches? Matthew 24, 45 says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods, being faithful everywhere. Ephesians says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Love your wives. Put your wives before yourself. Ephesians 5.33 says, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Someone once said, wives need to know that they are loved, and husbands need to know that they are respected. Back in Luke, verse 15. Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. But John never touched the glory that could have come to him because people were looking at him and wondering if he was the Christ. Instead, he would say, he must increase and I must decrease. And may that be true in each one of us. He must increase, I must decrease. In Matthew 11, 11, Jesus said, Surely I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. No greater who is born of woman than John the Baptist, but he who is born of God even the least is in the kingdom is greater than John. Verse 16, John answers saying to all, 
I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I baptize you with water. People repenting, confessing their sins and their need for God in their lives. But there's one coming who will meet that need. John was used to draw people back to God. Jesus came for something even more glorious and beyond our reach. 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Jesus came to make us new new life form. Children of God. People came to John expressing a desire to obey God and live. Jesus came to give life and give people the power to obey God. Verse 17, it says, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There is a verse that I have taken to heart, and I pray over a lot. It's in Luke 21:36. Jesus said, Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, he was speaking to the Jews concerning the last days of Jacob's trouble. But we are living in the last days, and the spirit of Antichrist is covering the world. I don't want to be deceived. I don't want to fall away. I don't want to be separated from God. I want to be found in him and be with him. So we watch and we pray to be counted worthy to escape this world, to escape my flesh and to be able to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus said, just pray for that. Verse 18 says, And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. When all the people were baptized, It came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. The gentleness of God, the Holy Spirit, descended on him like a dove, gentle. You know, with the kids, I always like to give them the account of Elijah in the cave in 1 Kings 19.11. It says, Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, And behold, behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, a still, small voice. And you can just picture Elijah, the wind, the earthquake, Elijah just being on the ground, covering his face from fear. And then he hears a soft, gentle whisper, and that was the Lord. And a voice from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Jesus is the only one who ever lived whom God could say, In you, in and of yourself, I am well pleased. You could never say that to any other human being. Romans 13, 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. If you put on a coat, you are in the coat. If you put on Jesus Christ, you are in Christ. 
And if you're in Christ, then God is well pleased. God is pleased. I told a story to the kids about a boy who was camping and it was freezing out and he's in his tent and he's trying to get warm and he can't. And he says, how am I ever going to get warm? And just then his father walks in with a big comforter and wraps his son up in the comforter. And in that comforter, he is warmed. Some people say, how am I ever going to get to heaven? I try, I always fail, I'm blowing it. Jesus wraps us up in his goodness. And in that goodness, we have been made perfect. In order to get to heaven, you have to meet God's standard. And God does have a standard. His standard is absolute perfection. In Christ, that standard of perfection has been met only in Christ. In verse 23, it says, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. And then it goes to the genealogy. I'm not even going to try to uh, massacre these names. If you want the correct pronunciation and a more in-depth look into this, you have to wait till Pastor Rob gets to uh, Luke and gets to these verses. But just for the heck of it, I would like to look at the last part of this. Uh, verse 36 and verse 37. If you've heard this already, um, you can close your eyes and take a little nap. I'll wake you up when I'm done with it. If you haven't heard it, it's interesting. This is from Chuck Missler, the first time I heard it. And I've done a little bit of research in it, and... Uh, it has to do with the meaning of these names that are in the last part of this uh, genealogy from Adam to Moses. And the websites that I've looked at and the people I've looked up and trusted, this is pretty close, this is pretty accurate. If you look at, you start with Adam and go to Noah, every, all, the, all the names in the Bible have meanings. We know that Jesus means God saves. Jacob means heel catcher. It can be translated as thief. Um, all the names have meanings, and all these names have meanings. Adam, which in Hebrew is Adumah, means man or humanity. Seth means appointed, because in Genesis 4.25 it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. So she named him Seth because she felt he was appointed to take the place of Cain. And we don't know why people name their kids these names. It's circumstances that happened at their birth or whatever. Um, you got Adam, Seth, Enosh, from a root word, Anesh means to be incurable, or frail, or miserable, or it can be translated mortal. And then you have Kenan, which means sorrow. Or it can also mean a place of residence, or dirge. Then you have Mahalel, which means, his name means the blessed God, Mahalel, means blessed, and El is the name of God. Jared comes from the verb Yarda, which means shall come down or shall appear. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah means 
his death shall bring. Muth, muth is a root that means death, and shalek means bring or send forth. Lamech means despairing. It's where we get the word lament or lamentation. And Noah mean, is derived from the word nakam, which means comfort or rest. Because in Genesis 5.29, it says, and he called his name Noah, saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. So it means comfort. So if you put all these together, all the names, all the meaning of these names, it reads, man is appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. So according to Chuck Missler, there is a hidden message in that that speaks the gospel and the genealogy, which can also be found in Genesis chapter 5 in that genealogy. It's a good one to show skeptics and... Uh, I also heard on the call-in show on the radio, one of the pastors was saying that this is what that, those names and the meaning of those names and that message is what the Lord used to bring him to the Lord. So, verse, or chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The power of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit, walked in the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and was raised by the Spirit. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus said in John 5.30, I can of myself do nothing, but as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In John 15.5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. You know, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit important in these days that we live in? And it is important. Only if we want to be used by the Lord to accomplish something eternal. There is, in a sense, a religious war going on in this country, a nonviolent one. It's like the church versus the things, the doctrines, the ideologies being introduced into our culture and institutions that are contrary to the Word of God. And we all see it every day. Those things which celebrate. What, what the word of God says is sin, destructive, and perversion. They are imposing their morality on an entire generation. And not only this generation is coming up, but they are converting generations that have even yet to come up at very early ages. And they're successful because they have the power to do so. They control the schools, the media, and the entertainment industry. We as Christians don't preach morality. We preach Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and him crucified and risen to life. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If we are preaching Christ apart from the baptism of the Holy Spirit, our words couldn't be more empty in this world today. The baptism of the Spirit is essential. So how do we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Do we have to clean up our act before we can receive it? We receive it by faith, like every other good thing from God. We receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit by faith, and we pray. The church has developed a model prayer, so to speak, to receive Christ. We call it the sinner's prayer. It's at the end of every tract that we read. It's the end of every altar call. You go up, people go up to the altar, and the evangelist says, say this prayer to receive Christ. And it's kind of like become sort of a model prayer for receiving Christ. So is there a model prayer to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I think there is. I think it's in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. It says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. And I think that's the prayer. That's the prayer to receive the Holy Spirit. Lord, send me. Not because of anything I have or any human capabilities. It's not what we have, but it's what we desire. For whomever the Lord sends, he equips. He opens doors, he gives the words, and he softens the hearts. When we go into work tomorrow morning, before we go in, we should pray, Lord, send me, and the Lord will equip us with everything we need, and his will will be done. When we come home to our families, Lord, send me home. Send me to my family. When we go into Wegmans, Lord, send me, and if it's his will, the doors will open, and there will be opportunities. You'll be amazed in everyday circumstances if we pray that prayer and we mean it from the heart. You'll be amazed how many doors open during the day. And we just pray, Lord, send me. And the Lord, if it's his will that we are sent to a specific person or a place, he equips us with everything that we need. We don't have to fret or strive, but we know if he chooses to send us, he will baptize us in the spirit to accomplish his purpose. He will do it all and be glorified. So let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we thank you, first of all, for the forgiveness of our sins. That, Lord, you justified us so completely that you don't look upon the bad, Lord. You only look upon the good that you have accomplished for us and in us, Lord. So we thank you for that, that we are forgiven. And, Lord, we pray you would bring us back to you, Lord. Cause us to repent, Lord. If anything that's keeping us from you, anything that's separated us from you, Lord, bring us back. Help us to know, Lord, that we can always come home and that you're always waiting for us and will accept us, Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would baptize us in your spirit. Lord, please, this week, send us, Lord, at work, at home. Send us, Lord, we pray, and we pray your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.